Everyone has a story. I get them to tell it. Welcome to the Aaron Bender Podcast, conversations with media personalities about their personal and professional lives and journeys. Really appreciate your support, whether you're listening on your favorite platform like Amazon Music or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or watching on YouTube or nightly at 11 p.m. Pacific or 2 a.m. Eastern on DB&A TV at dbandatelevision.tv or streaming with the DB&A TV app on Amazon Fire, Roku, and Apple TV. Thank you so much. Before we get to my conversation with Shanu Her, a little about my story. I'm a widowed dad of two girls who just lost their mom, a grieving husband, a man in recovery trying to reconnect with the world with fresh eyes, faith, and perspective, a college journalism professor, a white guy in a world of injustice, a 20-year broadcast media veteran who had his dream job and then lost it. A year and a half ago, God gave me a gift, an opportunity to stop, step back, and breathe so I can learn about love, vulnerability, forgiveness, grace, self-care, patience, and understanding. Shadu Her is a TV news reporter at 11 Alive in Atlanta. We first talked for the podcast back in March, but that was a brief conversation centered mostly around the spa shootings in the Atlanta area and the Stop Asian Hate campaign. In this conversation, we dive into Shanu's fight with COVID, growing up in Minnesota, self-care as a journalist and son of Hmong immigrants, his meme fame, and his growing sneaker collection. But first, an update on the spa shootings case and how Shanu's been doing the last couple of months. Yeah, so the latest uh, this week, um, we found out from uh, Fulton County, um, as well as Cherokee County, because remember, uh, there were two different sites uh, of the shooting. So they were in different counties. And so um, this week, uh, grand juries from both counties um, uh, indicted him on, on several murder charges. And also um, the district attorney in Fulton County uh, is seeking hate crime charges as well as the death penalty. So that's been um, sort of the big news this week. Um, and uh, just yesterday, I actually interviewed the, uh, there was one survivor. He was he was shot in Cherokee County. And the, he's, the husband he's of one of the victims, right? Um, so he actually, so he uh, was there by himself. His, his wife was not there. Oh, okay. Um, so he was actually shot as well. And, um, but he survived. And so yesterday I interviewed him just to sort of get his thoughts on the latest. And um, yeah, so that's, that's been, that's been the big news this week. So we'll see uh, what comes next after this, but um, no, I've been, I've been good since, um, uh, you know, just trying to stay on top of this and, you know, just still trying to be uh, uh, mindful and, and keeping my, my, my eyes and my ears open to anything in the community that, you know, they may want to come forward and, and speak on. So I feel like, and it's probably, has that been six weeks? Yeah, yeah, just about. Okay. Know. I feel like right after that, when we talked, there was not a lack of energy because I don't I don't feel like that's an accurate portrayal or representation, yeah. but it was just kind of a drained energy, kind of just like, oh. Yeah, it was just kind of, it was somber. And I think for a lot of, a lot of uh, Asian Americans at that time, whether you were a journalist or a business owner or someone in, in, in politics or legislator, I mean, I think we just collectively had this, this um sort of emotional exhaustion um that's a great way to put it yeah right so yeah that was kind of how we all felt at that time you also have such a special connection with your hometown of st paul minneapolis 
which yeah. was also yeah. in the news in the last few weeks with yeah. the Derek Chauvin trial uh, in the George Floyd murder. How did you take all of that in? Yeah, it was, it was, um, it, I think for me, it really helped that I, um, have uh, a lot of friends that work in journalism there. And so, um, I was able to really kind of take things in factually. And I think that really helps me because, because I'm in journalism. And so for me, when, when I can take things in factually like that, um, and because it was covered over a period of time, I think that really helped me kind of process everything. Um, but yeah, I mean, when, when you see your hometown on national news like that, and, and you just kind of see everything that's been happening over the past year, it's a lot because it wasn't just even the, um, the, the Derek, uh, the Derek Chauvin trial, but there were shootings that happened before then too. So it was just a lot. And then I think Dante Wright was just, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, pretty much down the street. Yeah, it was just it's it was just right in a suburb right outside Minneapolis. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it. I, you know, I, I commend my friends who work in journalism there because it's just one thing after another. Um, but also I feel for for the people that live there, the people I knew I know growing up who are still there. And so it's a lot to be in the spotlight all the, the spotlight all the time like that. How do you separate your journalism hat from your, I'm a person and I care about other people hat? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, I, you know, I, I, I try to, on my off time, I try to unplug a little bit. Um, and I'm also really close with my family. So when I, when I, when I talk to my siblings or my parents or um, extended family, I try not to talk too much about anything that seems related. Yeah. Um, and I think that really helps keep me grounded. Um, but you know, I think a part of it too, is I think the, the fact that I can still be a human being while being a journalist, I think it helps, it helps me kind of, you know, when I, when I'm doing stories, when I'm talking to people, I think it helps me relate to them a lot better than, you know, just walking in and sort of shutting off my emotions. Yeah. We've talked about this, uh, I think you and I, and then with other guests on the podcast, the idea that we used to have to be robots or at least we were expected to be robots yeah. and just go in. Doesn't matter the the story, just go in and cover it. Tell me the facts and leave your emotions at the door. And it's just not that way anymore. Yeah. I mean, I think you can, I think you can still approach a story as a human being with emotions and still cover it very uh, unbiasedly and factually. Um, and, and, and honestly, a lot of that is behind the scenes. That's how you interact with people that you are going to be interviewing or talking to um, a lot of that is more behind the scenes of that, that you don't see on TV or um, when you're reading a newspaper article, it's, it's, it's how you can be a human being. And, and when you're talking to people, because, you know, a lot of times we talk to people when they are in like the most vulnerable state in their lives, or they're having the worst day of their life. And if you can't, as a journalist, be sympathetic or empathetic for them. It, it really makes the job hard. Tell me about growing up in Minneapolis. You are uh, the son of Hmong immigrants. First off, uh, for our listeners who don't know about the Hmong community, just talk about it. Yeah, so so uh, my ethnicity is Hmong. Um, we don't have a country, but um, my parents are from Laos. And so uh, a lot of Hmong people live in like Southeast Asia region. Um, and so my parents... Um, 
they uh, immigrated over to the United States after the Vietnam War, um, and they actually met in the States and got married in the States. So, um, but yeah, we're, we're how did they meet? Were they were they both? Did they both relocate to the Minneapolis area? Because I know no, there's so, a huge population in Fresno and, yeah. and a couple other spots in the U.S. Yeah, so um, my dad's family relocated to Minnesota, uh, which also has a huge, where I'm from, there's a huge mom population there. And then my mom's family uh, relocated to California. So I'm sure through some, you know, it's a small world when you're Hmong. So uh, I'm sure that they met in, in Minnesota through, I'm sure, some sort of uh, family <laughs> affair. And yeah, that's that's how it all happened. So um, yeah, so I still have lots of family in California and lots of family in Minnesota. So uh, but I haven't done a whole lot of traveling since the pandemic. So uh, how how are they doing through all of this? Because, again, I, I know we keep referencing the previous podcast, but not everybody listening to this yeah, yeah. did listen to the previous podcast. But you should. You should. <laughs> you should, yes. definitely. Uh, how, do, how have they been doing with, A, the pandemic, and B, the increased number of hate crimes targeting Asian Americans and the Pacific Islander community? Yeah, I think initially with the pandemic, I think um, uh, I, I know like my parents and all the elders in my family, I think they were very scared, uh, like a lot of people, because there weren't a lot of answers. And um, also at the time, um, uh, you know, the, the information that was coming out wasn't also translated very well. So uh, there were there were there was lots of fear uh, as to, you know, what this was all about. Um and then on top of that, you're right. I mean, we start seeing the the Asian American hate crimes rise, and so you know, like when I my aunt recently called me, and she was you know making sure that I don't you know go to the store at night and things like that. And you know, I think when it's your own family like living like that and sort of having these thoughts, I think it makes it a lot more real. And so, um, but you know, my my family, pretty much everyone in my family has since been vaccinated, and um, so I think with the pandemic, I think they're they're really starting to feel a lot more at ease about it. And also we have lots of Hmong doctors and stuff in the Twin Cities who've done really good, just like outreach and campaigns and getting everyone vaccinated. Um, so I think that has been a big help for them. Um, but I think right now they're, they're a little bit more worried about just like the hate crimes and all that. So, um, you know, my mom's very, my mom and my dad and my aunts are all very like, uh, uh, they, 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 get on me a lot about making sure I don't go places alone, especially late at night and things like that. So, And we're recording this uh, just a few hours after the CDC said, hey, by the way, if you're fully vaccinated, masks off, baby, let's go. Yeah, let's go. What was the... I want to go back to, like... I'm probably going to take all this out. It's fine. Um... (laughs) I, I want to go back to as because as you were talking, I'm thinking about also the idea that um, you know immigrants into the U.S. they often come from countries where the government is not to be trusted, or right. or if or if you do trust the government, it's kind of with a grain of salt. What was that yeah. transition like uh, for them as you've had conversations with them, yeah. uh, you know, as, growing up and whatnot? But also during the pandemic, the idea that hey you know, the government says this, we should do that. And uh, what was that? What were those conversations like? I think I've always noticed that like growing up, my parents were, um, they weren't super skeptical of the government or anything like that, because you're right. I mean, you, you keep in mind that 
they grew up and are from a country where um, they weren't treated very well. So they get to the States and this is like better than anything they could have imagined. Um, the technology is a lot better, um, you know, medicine's a lot better. And so they're not super skeptical of the government or um, doctors or anything like that. So um, they tend to, uh, you know, like with, when the CDC puts out new guidelines, they tend to um, really follow that very closely um, because, you know, for most of their lives, I mean, they were never around or for early on in their lives, for the states, they were never around modern medicine or um, a government that really allowed them to be free. So for them, this is like amazing. What kinds of conversations? I, I mean, you, you you said you grew up in Minneapolis, huge Hmong community. Again, yeah. Fresno, I, I think those two spots in the United States are like 75 or 80 percent of yeah. of, uh, of all the communities in the U.S., um, I would imagine you got a lot of uh, what are you, where are you yeah. from, yeah. you know, uh, wait a minute, what, what is that? Yeah. Um, how do you, how did you deal with it or answer it? And, and, and I mean, I, I, I guess, yeah, I'll just, I'll just leave it right there. Like how, how did you answer it? How did you deal with it? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big I'm a big advocate for, I think, my community and, and, and making sure that we're visible in all spaces. And so education has always been um, sort of on the forefront of, of what I like to advocate for. So when people ask me, uh, I have no problem, uh, you know, sort of letting them know who Hmong people are and what I am. Um, you know, when people come with the right intentions, I have no problem explaining, um, you know, who we are and, and uh, where we're from. Did, did you always want to be a journalist? Did you go to school? It was University of Northwestern St. Paul with journalism in mind? Yeah. So I, I always wanted to be a journalist. I didn't, at, early on, I didn't know if I wanted to do newspaper or TV. Um, and I kind of landed in the TV realm. That was a good uh, call. Yeah, that was a good call. Yeah. Yeah. So I always wanted to uh, go into journalism. Um, and uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's worked out and I, you know, don't regret it. So what was that spark? Where, why did you always know? Yeah, you know, growing up in the Twin Cities, I always I watched a lot of like local news with my with my family, and and it was mostly because we couldn't afford cable, so we watched <laughs> like the TV would be on, I right? Was the and same so way. Would, yeah, so we would watch yes. the local news, and my and it's funny because my parents were like they were such like fangirls of like the local news people, like um, so. Wait, you live in LA, right? Yes. So, do you remember um, Paul Majors? He anchored. Oh, of course, in, Paul Majors. I'm yeah, Paul, Majors. Paul Majors, right? So, so growing up, he so he anchored in the Twin Cities. Oh, and okay. Up, yes. My parents loved Paul Majors. Like they were always like, "Oh man, like he dressed so nice and he's so smart." And so, I think for me, like that was always kind of my vision of like what what uh, having a successful career was like and what being smart was like. And so I think kind of early on before I even knew like what journalism was, that was always my vision and my picture of what being successful was like. I want to be so, Paul Majors. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> I, want I, my I, family I want to be Paul Majors. <laughs> I want to be, I want to be on the news. And so I think once I got old enough to kind of realize, Oh, like this is what journalism is. Uh, I, yeah, there was no turning back. Do you have an idea of maybe going back to uh, the twin cities to report there? Is that your, your dream, like growing up in LA, my dream was to go get experience somewhere else and come back to LA. What about you? Yeah, that was always my goal uh, early on. That was always my goal um, to, 
you know, move around, get some experience, see different places, and then come back home and be around my family and be being around uh, a community um, that I grew up in. Um, but now that I'm in Atlanta, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I, I really like Atlanta. I never really thought that um, my career would take me to a city as big as Atlanta. And so um, I'm enjoying it here. And, you know, I've, I've had this talk with my parents before because like they're, they're, you know, always asking me, like, oh, when are you going to move back? Or do you want to move back? <laughs> um, and, you know, I've, I've lived in the South for a while now. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I dread the snow and so we'll, oh, we'll it's see. changed you. It's, it's changed. Yeah. You're spoiled now. You're spoiled with sunshine. I know. My parents are always like, oh, do you want to come home for Christmas? I'm like, nah, really. Why don't they yeah. move down? Why do they move down to Atlanta? Exactly. So, I mean, we'll see. You know, it's, you know the, the thing about this business is that things change all the time. And yeah. so I try not to always have like a set plan uh, just in case things change. But, you know, I'm like super happy where I'm at and I, and I love where I'm at. And so... Uh, you know, we'll, we'll try to hold it down like that for a little bit. Have you always been flexible in that department where it's like, okay, this was my dream when I first started, but now not so much. Have you always been flexible and just kind of uh, being able to adapt? Yeah, I think flexibility was something that I learned early on um, when I was still interning from just all my mentors that, you know, I, I needed to be uh, flexible and, you know, not have things so set in stone. So I remember my first job was in Eugene, Oregon, and I had never wanted to move to Oregon, but I went to Oregon. And, um, you know, at the time <laughs> I, I told myself, I was like, I would never live in the South. Like, I just don't want to live in the South. Yeah. And so I had all these, all these States, all these Southern States. I'm like, these States I will never live in. Uh, Virginia and Georgia was on that list, and I've lived now in Virginia and Georgia. So that, I have, uh, holds up. Why? Why were those on the list? Like, it's just because it was in the South, and you're like, yeah, oh, I just didn't want to live in the South. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, and of course, you know, that's to, where you go next. Yeah, yeah. And so, right after, right after Oregon, I moved to Virginia, and then I was like, hey, well, it's not too bad. Um, and then uh, for Virginia, I came to Atlanta. So, you know, my my own my own uh, do not move to list has been broken twice. How what what are some memories you have of that first market, Eugene, Oregon? Man, it was you know I think if you ask a lot of um, if you ask a lot of journalists, I think that first market is always one that they'll never forget. I mean, you're all so young. Most of most of us are not from there, so you almost really I mean you're around each other all the time. And um, some of my best friends to this day, um, whether they're in the business or not anymore. Um, uh, were people I met in Eugene, Oregon. Same. And, uh, yeah, same thing. Right. It was, it was just a great, it was just a great uh, place to be. And I met great people there. And, you know, just, I just remember, man, we would uh, like, you know, you make very little money, but you know, you, you found ways to make it work and having that in common was just, you know, I think it, it really bonded you. And so, yeah, I keep in touch with all those, all of my friends from there. To That's this where I developed my love for ramen. Like, like love, right. I, I did not, I didn't eat enough of it that I learned to resent it, You're Right. Know? but, but that's yeah. where I developed. Like what, what would you feel like if you, if you had to nail down Oregon in like a food, you know? Oh, oh, if I didn't, <laughs> you know, I've thought about this before, uh, probably like, probably like just plain oatmeal. Like that's, that's <laughs> what I mean. just plain oatmeal. Like that's really all, like that's granola. Get me through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's all it is. I I 
ate so much ramen and oatmeal and cereal while I was there. But you know what, Dad? I, I remember those days. I still have pictures of my very first apartment in Oregon. It was so small, and I still have pictures of it in my phone. And every once in a while, I'll look at it and be like, man, like this is really where it started. Any thoughts at any point during the process, during this journey of like, you know what? No, this is, this is not for me. I'm sorry, mom and dad. I'm not going to be Paul majors. I've, I, I'm going to go, I'm getting into real estate. I'm getting into PR. I'm getting into something <laughs> right. where I can make some money. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've definitely had a couple of those moments along the way. Um, and it, and it wasn't ever because I uh, felt like I didn't love journalism anymore. I think it was, it was more so, um, times where I felt like, man, you know, I just don't want to miss any more events with my family or, um, or, you know, th- it was more so things like that. It was the first years I- with those holidays, you work the holidays yeah. cause you're the, you're yeah. the new guy, you're the single guy. You just, exactly. Yep. You know, and, and, and because of that, you know, I, I, I've never felt, um, uh, I've never felt, um, like if, if I had a coworker who needed some time off because they have, you know, to be there for their kid or if I had to work Christmas because, you know, I, I don't mind because I don't have kids and, and I'm not married. So um, and, and I know what it's like to miss family stuff yeah. and, I, and I feel bad. So, you know, when, when if I have to work at Christmas so that my coworker can go be with their kids, you know, that's not a big deal for me. It's difficult to kind of imagine having that. It's difficult to imagine having the kind of time necessary at that first job for, for self-care, you know, it becomes, I feel like more important as you go on in your career because, okay, your, your career is more established now. Yeah. You know, was, was that even in your mind back in Oregon or it was like 18 hour days? I know I got to do it. Got to pay the dues because that was also the mindset that's kind of pounded into you in college. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. When I was in Oregon, uh, we worked, even if it was just a regular eight hour day, there was so much stuff crammed into that day that, you know, you get off and you just are exhausted. Um, but you know, that's, that's a small, that's small market news life. Um, and, uh, you know, I, you're right. I mean, I think that was, I walked into it expecting that because I was kind of, I had really good mentors who kind of mentally prepared me for that. But, um, I think at that time, you know, we were just so, I mean, just me and all of my friends, whether they worked in my station or the other stations, I mean, we just knew you just had to grind it out for your two or three years and you move on. And so that was kind of the mindset. You just grind and you move on. And um, so, you know, I I look back on my two and a half, almost three years there. And, you know, I I think like, man, like I worked a lot. (laughs) 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 <laughs> I worked a lot, you know, like Virginia and Atlanta combined in three years in Oregon. Yeah, pretty much, you know, and it wasn't until it wasn't until a couple of years into me being in Virginia where I was like, man, like I need to like just slow down a little bit, um, take some time for like self care. It's okay to say no to people on the weekends, just take time to yourself. Um, I started seeing a therapist to kind of just really like, you know, hammer out some things that, um, that, you know, I felt early on in my career. Um, cause you know, you see so much stuff and at that time, because it was such, you were always so busy, you see so much stuff that you never talk about and you just kind of cram it in there and you just move on. And so a couple of years into Virginia, I was like, man, you're like, let me just see a therapist and see what this is all about. And it's very helpful to just kind of help me unpack mentally. And, um, that was when I really realized that, 
you know, I think self-care is really, really important, especially in this business. Um, so the idea of a therapist in the immigrant community, regardless of what community you're talking about, it's, it's a, it's a foreign idea to just keep throwing out all these different, how did you come to the realization that you a needed a therapist and what kinds of conversations have you had with your family about like, Hey, I'm seeing a therapist and you're, you're seeing a what? I'm sorry. You're, you're sharing, yeah, you're, yeah. you're sharing your personal, your family business or whatever with other people. What, yeah. what were those conversations like? Yeah. You know, I, I, I think I was very fortunate and that my parents were understanding about what I was doing. Um, and I think they were more, they, I think they asked questions more out of curiosity than um, being skeptical of what I was doing. Um, and I think they did see too, that once I started doing that, I was a lot uh, mentally and emotionally healthier. So they, they were all for it. Um, and then my siblings, I have four siblings and they were all very supportive of it. Um, and I actually encouraged them to, you know, seek um, a therapist if they needed, but I was also very, um, but because of that, when I was looking for a therapist, I was very, very intentional about finding a therapist who was a person of color who kind of understood my family dynamics. And so um, I think that was really important. That was really helpful because then she was able to kind of see kind of how my, my career and my social life really um, uh, played with my family as well. Wait, what social life? We're journalists. We're not supposed to have a social (laughs) life. (laughs) You're only talking about your second market. There's no such thing as a social life. Come on. The, uh, uh, at what point or was there a like a a single story or a single moment that said, okay, you know what, I, I really should talk to somebody? Um it I think for me the 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 I didn't realize it then until two years later or so about two years later, I didn't realize it, but I think it was the first, the first mass shooting I covered in Oregon. Um, it was, um, at Umqua community college. Um, and I think a total of like 10 people were killed. And, um, I was out there covering that for days. Um, and you know, I'm, I, at that time, you know, again, I mean, I, I was working in a small market, just trying to make slot alongside all these networks and all these huge stations. And, you know, they had crews and I was lucky to have one person with me. And so I think at that time I was just trying to make my deadline. And so I think after that, I didn't realize how much that kind of shaped the way I approached my job until I started seeing a therapist. Um, And she, she she was helping me unpack and she was like, I think that might be why, you know, you view things a certain way uh, when, when you approach interviews or when you approach stories or how you, um, uh, uh, you know, view things. So I think that was the moment. It's interesting that it still took a few years, though, for you. to. Yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think I didn't I think I didn't fully grasp like the effect of covering that story for me. Um, and um so yeah, it wasn't until I was able to have someone help me unload all that that I realized, wow, like that really did have that really was the defining moment in my career. There is such an emphasis on self-care and mental health. I teach journalism students at at Cal State Northridge. And so I'm wondering from somebody in the business who, okay, I've 
covered some really, really terrible stories. Yeah. And I do see a therapist now. What is your advice to somebody like me who is talking with the yeah. next generation of journalists? Yeah, I think I think it's I think they should just understand that it's it's not selfish and it's not weak to to prioritize self-care. Um, cause I think, uh, I think we live in a culture where if you take time for yourself, uh, it's, it seems kind of selfish and, and I, I, I don't really see it that way now. Um, I think if anything, it makes me a better journalist. I think it makes me a more enjoyable person to be around, uh, even off the clock. And, um, so, you know, for like younger journalists, just prioritize your self-care, um, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean seeing a therapist. That could mean just, you know, spending your Saturday reading a book and, you know, going, going to the park if that's what you enjoy. Just doing things that you enjoy um, and, and not, you know, setting your schedule around someone else. And the understanding that five minutes here and 15 minutes there is okay. Yeah. 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 Oh, totally. I mean, if I'm having a long work day um, and I have something makes a lot, you know, I'll I'll just like you know, when I get to where I need to be, I just take five minutes to just sit there and not touch my computer, not look at my emails. I'll just take five minutes to just sit there and kind of breathe and kind of just, you know, be in my thoughts for a little bit. And then I keep going. Um, it's, it's sometimes those little mental breaks for me makes a bigger difference than taking a one hour lunch break. So. What about your days off? You give yourself like some no phone and computer time, some downtime, yeah, so, like some so true downtime. Yeah, um, I think especially on my weekends, um, I, my the, my biggest thumb rule is I don't keep my work phone in my my bedroom. So that phone, oh nice, stays in the kitchen. Nice. It doesn't come into my bedroom. Do the assignment editors know this? Do do your bosses know I, this? I feel, I feel like they know this, but you know, I'm 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 responsive. I mean, you know, I, at the end of the day, we're journalists, and so I still will check my work phone. But at night, like when I'm go to bed. Uh, until I wake up, like my, the phone is not in my room, um, just so that it's not constantly buzzing or anything like that. Um, and, and then like, you know, I'll go to the gym and then I'll just go take some time to myself and, and do what I need to do. Um, but yeah, on my days off, I just really try to do those things that will re-energize me for Monday. At what point did you pick up the sneaker obsession? Oh Lord. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I've always, this is the thing is like, I've, I grew up like, I love Michael Jordan. Like I grew up um, just a, a big basketball fan. And so for me, I think it really started when I was young and I would see Michael Jordan in, in, in these um, magazines. Um, the old and, magazines, because we know you're not even old enough to have watched him play live. I understand, Chanu. Yeah, I understand. No, no. Yeah, no, so I, it, was, it was really the old magazine. Yeah. Like, because... Um, for me, it started when I saw Space Jam and I'm like, Michael Jordan's cool. So, you know, <laughs> then I started kind of like backtracking. Yeah. Um, but um, no, I mean, I think really liking Jordan growing up and then really just being into basketball um, at the NBA. I mean, I think that kind of is what sparked it. But at the time, like growing up, like, you know, my parents didn't have a lot of money, so I couldn't really get all like the, the latest sneakers and stuff. And so now I'm like, well, I'm an adult. <laughs> I have no kids, no pets, no, really no one else to be responsible for. Yes. So I'm like, you know, so like I, I, I have some sneakers that I, that some, some retro Jordans that I bought 
that I remember as a kid, like really wanting them. And so some of them have been re-released um, recently and like, I just had to have them, you know? And so it's, it's been, it's been kind of cool to like, just be able to collect all that. No. So I, I'm not a sneakerhead at all. So you could throw out all these kind of model <laughs> names and everything like that. Yeah, I'd be yeah, like, yeah. Oh yeah, no, that's cool. Okay. But <laughs> I'm going to tag this in such a way that somebody's going to find this. Okay. Somebody's okay. going to find this clip and they're going to know exactly what you're talking about. When I ask you, like, what are a few of your favorites in your collection? And what are some of like your white whales that you just haven't gotten yet, but you're trying. Okay. So um, I would say right now I, I have mostly uh, 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 Jordans, like retro Jordans, but I would say my most like prized possession, and I haven't even worn them, and I looked for them for years, and I finally found them when I moved to Atlanta. Um, is a pair of uh, classic uh, Reebok pumps, the Michael Chang uh, pumps, because Michael Chang, you know, wow, he, he nice. Yeah, they're they're oh, like that amazing. is a throwback, man. It's a it's a total throwback. Um, you know, I because I would say like I think for me, like the earliest Asian American pro athlete that I can remember that was really prolific in American sports is Michael Chang. And so I really, really wanted these classic Reebok pumps. And so for years, I would say probably five or six years, I looked for them and I could not find them like in good condition anyways. Um, and so I moved to Atlanta and my cousin who was in Portland was like, Hey, have you seen, have you been to the store in Atlanta? He was like, I think they have those pumps. And he sent me a link and I found them. They had one pair left my size and I bought them. Oh, in your size uh, too. Like in would, my size too. Now, would you have bought them if they were not in your size, but they were uh, in good condition because you're like, I've, I've just got to have them. Yeah. They were brand new. Yeah. Even if they were brand my size, new. brand new, brand oh, new, never been worn. Dude. So, and the box is all beat up, but they were, the shoes are brand new. And so, yeah, no, I would have bought them even if they weren't my size. Cause my, my ultimate goal with that pair of shoes is I, I, I really don't want to wear them. I want to, I want to see if I can eventually have Michael Chang sign them, but then I don't just want to like put them away. Yes. Yeah. On the wall behind you, some yeah, sort of glass yeah. case or something. Yeah. Yes. I want to just put them away. What's um, the likelihood but, that you can get them signed? I, I, I don't even know like what he's, what he's doing now is. Yeah. He, I think he lives in California and I think he just does a lot of like nonprofit uh, work now. Um, through tennis and other sports. Send them um, to me. I'll, I'll just stalk him for like a week. Like, <laughs> that hey. would be amazing to just get these signed, right? <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, I love them. So I've never worn them, but um, I think I, I don't have them, but I just want um, a pair of like the, the classic Chicago Jordan ones, the uh, red, black, and white. Um, in, my, in my opinion, I think that is the most iconic sneaker of all time. Um, I don't have a pair. Um, it's, what, it's, what, it's a lot why not though lot. like what 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 has stopped you is it the price is it the availability um it's it's definitely the, the it's definitely the price i mean you can't find them for retail so right. i would have to buy them in the in the resale market and it's just a little out of my price range right now so <laughs> someday i think i might just like like buck up and get them but um i would say that right now for me at least that's like that's like a grail that i want um, for safety just, purposes we're just going to claim that all of your sneakers are safe off site in a, in a, in some kind of security uh behind, somewhere. behind armed somewhere guards in Atlanta. what's the most you've spent for a pair of sneakers the most i've spent uh to date the most i've spent uh is probably a little over 500 oh that's not bad i've heard yeah, okay not that's bad. not it's bad, not bad. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I it's, was it's expecting I, when you started saying five, I'm like five thousand dollars. No, 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 no. I'm not I'm not quite there yet. I'm not quite there yet. 
Yeah, no, just a little over 500. You know, I, I still, um, I still try to keep it uh, uh, modest because um, you know I still have other financial responsibilities. <laughs> there's still, there's, yes, so. exactly. <laughs> you may you may not have like little financial responsibilities running around, but you still need a yeah. roof over your head, and you exactly. still need to pay for all the armed guards and security around the shoes that you already own. Exactly. Yeah. One thing <laughs> we I, didn't. I, oh, go ahead. But I was going to say, you know, I, I have a lot of Jordans, but I think the pair that I wear the most is probably just to. Regular pair of New Balances. They're just, you can't beat them. Did you really just drop a New Balance while we talked about sneakers? I did. I did. Just a regular, regular pair of uh, dad shoes, New Balances. Those are my. I'm just going to cut this out because you might have just lost like 80 followers on Instagram when they hear this. Like, yes, he's got all these shoes. By the way, I rock New Balance. That's okay, though. It's okay. You're like, you're looking down like, hey, they're comfy, man. They're comfy. Yeah. The uh, one thing we didn't talk about last time that I was kicking myself for is you not only had COVID, you, I mean, you were knocked down for the count. It was rough, man. It was rough. Um, yeah, I got it uh, last June. Um, and I, I remember, I remember I, I wasn't feeling well one day. I had like just like a really bad headache and I was really tired. And so, um, I called out sick from work and I, I just could not go to work. And so it, it kind of freaked me out. Cause at that point I had been doing so many COVID stories. And so I knew all the symptoms and, and so it kind of freaked me out. And so I just did like a double check on like the CDC website. And I'm like, uh, I think I might have it. Checking so, all the boxes. Yeah. I was like, I think I'm, I definitely have it. I think. So I went and got a test that day. Um, I went and got a test that day. It was going to take a couple of days for the results to come back in. And so um, a couple of days go by and, um, the results hadn't come back in yet, but I was so sick. I, I actually FaceTimed my, my sister and like, before I can even say anything, she was like, are you sick? I was like, I don't feel good at all. She was like, dude, I think you need to go to the ER. You don't look good. So I did. And when I got to the ER, um, at that time, I mean, it was so strict at the, at the hospital here. Yes. Um, I pulled up and the, the check-in station is outside. And so they took my temp. Uh, they checked, they checked my oxygen and she, the, 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 um, woman checking me in, like she, she looked at my numbers and she was like, don't go in the waiting room. And she picked up a walkie and she was like, we need to, we have a patient that just walked in. We need to get him in the back right away. And so they just like walked me back there and threw me on the bed and like put fluids in me. And they, they did, they did a, a COVID test right away. Um, and I was in the ER for probably six or seven hours, just knocked out. And, um, yeah, sure enough, I had COVID. And so, um, I was home for 14 days, just like, Oh, so from, from the ER fluids, all kinds of things, and then sent home. Yeah. So, so they did all that. And then they, they told me, you know, you could stay if you feel like you need to, but you know, six or seven hours in, I felt a little bit better because they had me on fluid and also pneumonia too because of the COVID. Oh, Hey, so, by the way. <laughs> yeah. It was like, it was, so they, so they were like, yeah, so you have COVID and you know, whatever, whatever. Oh, and by the way, these are the x-rays of your lungs. You have, you have pneumonia. So make sure you take this medication. I was, I mean, it was, it was rough. Um, and so um, the doctor, you know, was checking in on me and, and he was like, um, you know, we can release you if you want, um, but you can, or you can stay. And at that time I felt good enough to, to leave. And so I, I came home and then I was just in bed for 14 days and 
that was that. Did you tell your sister first because she was the one you had talked with or did you call your parents? What were those talks like? Yeah. So I, I texted my siblings in a group chat. I'm pretty sure I said, Hey, I have, I have COVID. And so, um, at first, I think they didn't believe me. Like the, the I was four, thinking the, the same. Four, thing. The, the, the three younger siblings, I think at first they didn't believe me. Um, it was my older sister who I initially talked to. So she had already physically seen that I didn't look good. Yeah. And so she was like more worried. But my, my three younger siblings thought I was kidding. And so I was like, no, I like legitimately have COVID. Like I'm bedridden. Um, and I was like really sick for about a good week and a half. Um, and my work was great. I mean, they, I, they, like my managers checked in on me, like they would call me and check in on me. And my coworkers were constantly asking, like, if they, if I needed them to drop anything off at my door. And so, you know, I, I made it through, but it was definitely scary because, um, I think at that point I've been covering so many COVID stories and I'd heard how serious it could be for some people. And, you know, at that time there was this belief that, oh, young people will be okay. And, I mean, at the time I was 29, yeah. no medical conditions. I've never been that sick in my entire life. And uh, yeah, it really knocked me out. Uh, as uh, you're not, you mentioned you're not the oldest, but you are the oldest male. What kinds of pressures do you feel as the oldest male of five kids? Um, you know, I think it, so my, so I, I have an older sister and I think she's always really set the bar really high because she's like crazy smart. And she's like crazy smart and like really responsible. So, and, so forget the pressure of oldest male. You've got the pressure of living up to older, older sister. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so, and so um, it, I'm, I'm the oldest boy in my family. I'm also the oldest boy, like, like all the in, cousins, like, family, all the cousins. And right, everything, right? right. So I had a lot of pressure from my grandparents and, and all that to, you know, uh, like really set the bar for everyone. But I'm like, she already set the bar. Like I can't, you know, I can't do that. You know, right, right. Um, you know, she was like a straight A student, very studious. And I was like, you know, like an average student and not super studious. And so, um, you know, I think in, in a sense, like I was really lucky to have a sister that was like, like so like near perfect. And so uh, I think there was a lot of, I think the, the biggest pressure for me was, can you meet that? <laughs> so right, that, right. that was it for me. Yeah. For, forget the parents. It's like, I, I, yeah. I've, I've just got to meet this bar as yeah. best I can. But of course, as most of the guests on this podcast will attest, uh, journalism full of average students, baby. That's, <laughs> You're right. That's, like that's, that's how it, we it was, do it, it's, it's funny. Like I, so when I was in high school, I took, I took a journalism class and I was like, not into it like at all. Same. Like, oh my gosh. I probably got like a C or something in that class. And I, it's funny because I, I still kind of keep in touch with that teacher to this day. <laughs> and, and, and every once in a while, I'll be like, man, I'm like surprised that I've like made it this far in the business. And like, I feel like I wasn't that good of a student, you know? And she was like, it was always there. Like you just needed to, you just needed to find it. You know, I think and, a lot of times that's how it is with journalism. Uh, uh, majors and and people who yeah. want to pursue this is there's there's like some sort of creativity that yeah. that they can't quite tap into or put their finger on i mean there are some who absolutely like yes i love storytelling let's go but others including myself like i i just didn't quite know about this avenue or that yeah. that this was the type of creative muscle i want to flex right right you know i i was 
I was a horrible student when it came to like math and science and like things that I wasn't really interested in. Um, and once I got into journalism and I was doing it and I felt like, man, like I can really make some, something of myself doing this. That's when I really tapped in. I was like, okay, like this is it, you know? Um, and, and so I, that was really when I realized like, like I could make a career out of this and I really took it seriously. It took um, me three years at a community college to just kind of figure out like, oh, okay, I don't want to go into business. I'm not very good at accounting. Uh, and then sat there with my mom in the kitchen counter, college catalog, schedule of classes, what would be fun, yeah. what would be interesting. And yeah. I, I, I picked radio and I, I fell in love and, yeah. and it was from that, it was like, it was four years. It was two at community college, two at the, at the, at Cal state Northridge. It's the other three where I've just tried to figure out like, okay, what can I do? What is yeah. interesting? What would be, what, what could I be passionate about? And it just, no boxes were being checked. Yeah. Yeah. I think once you tap into that, once you kind of tap in and, and like, sort of like an open, you, you open this box of like, you know, finding like where your passions lie. I think that really motivates you um, to really, you know, just basically go all in, in, in this. And right. Like I wasn't, I wasn't a, I wasn't the best student. Um, you know, I, I got by, but once it came to journalism, it was like, I mean, that was, that was my thing, you yeah. know? And you're so, like, Oh, I totally want to do this. Assignment. Yeah. I totally yeah. Want when to get when I was my station in Virginia, the, it, uh, it, this is, this is funny. Cause like there's a, the, the military reporter there, he's someone that I really, really look up to in this business. Um, uh, he's been in the business for, for a long time. Yeah, Shout, shout him and, out. What's his, uh, Mike Gooding, Mike Gooding at WVEC in North Virginia, the military reporter, one of the best reporters I've ever worked alongside. Um, he, it was funny because he um, was telling me one time, he, he was, it was almost in like a bragging manner. And, and I appreciated it so much because uh, he's like a Virginia broadcasting like legend. And he was like, I went to Old Dominion and he was like, I graduated there with the lowest possible GPA you could have to graduate to this graduate. day. And he, and he like when he talked about that and I was, and I was just like mind blown because I was like, Mike is one of the smartest people I've ever met in this business. I mean, this dude is brilliant, you know? And I think that for me, like as, as a young journalist at that time, I think that for me really was like, uh, it was really like an eye opener because there were times where like around that time in my career, there were times where I, I felt like I wasn't as smart as everyone because I had coworkers who had like master's degrees and some coworkers who went to very prestigious J schools. And so there were times where I'd be like, Oh, I'm not, I'm not as smart as, you know, so-and-so. Yeah. You get this um, imposter syndrome, like I'm here, but I don't belong. Yeah. Yeah. You know, cause and, and so I remember when Mike told me that I was like, no way. Like you're like the smartest dude. Like I've met in this business, you know? Um, and, and, and that really was a, was a, was a bright spot uh, um, just in my career, you know, having some a, a veteran like that really be so candid about that. This may be old school on, on my part, and I'm just throwing that out there off the, do you ever have uh, any suggestions to change your first name? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely come up. Um, and I always, I have a hard firm. No, like it's, you know, if, if, <laughs> yes. if, 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 if a station or if, if a manager feels like, you know, me needing to change my name was, um, something that needs to happen for me to get a job. And, you know, I think that's not necessarily that, somebody you yeah. want to work for. Right. Yeah, right. exactly. I think it's just best that we don't pursue that, 
I mean, it's a little easier now. I mean, you're, you're three markets in. So it's like, hey, yeah. it's, it's, it's been fine for these three markets. But I would imagine going into your first market or even at, uh, at uh, University of Northwestern St. Paul, the idea like, hey, Chanu, uh, let's, let's maybe consider, you know, yeah. some sort yeah. of name change. Yeah, I think I think early on in my career, I was I was I would have been okay with it because I I just wanted a job, and so <laughs> right. um, somebody says, I was "Hey, like, let's whatever call it you takes, Steve." Right? <laughs> right? I was like, "Whatever it takes." I, I just wanted to to get my foot in the door, um, but I think now, you know, like you said, I mean, I, I've been in the business for a while now, and I'm three markets in, and I don't think I would do it now. And you know, I think I I, I am very lucky that like. I'm a part of AAJA and, and they, they've been very, very good about supporting um, AAPI journalists in, in things like this. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think now, like, I, I just wouldn't do that uh, because, you know, when, when when I, like, say, for example, if I ever uh, uh, move back home or if I'm in a, in a market where there's a lot of Hmong people, they see my name and they automatically know that I'm Hmong, you know? I mean, that right. happened when I moved to Atlanta, you know, I, I was on air for maybe a week and people started DMing me. They're like, Oh my God, you're Hmong and you're in Atlanta. And yeah, it was, it was great. Yeah, just the idea. Like, okay, maybe you change your first name. Maybe, maybe, yeah. but definitely yeah. not, not your last name because that is, no. that is your heritage. That is, that is yeah. you. I mean, there are only what, like a dozen last names yeah. in the Hmong community. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, uh, 14. 14. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, and so it's like people see her. It's like, okay, that's my guy. Yeah. 14 or 18. It's like 14 or 18. All right. I'll have to Google yeah, it right yeah. now. Hold on. Hold yeah. on. I'm, pretty sure I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go among last names. <laughs> uh, let's see. Of course there is uh, 18. 18. Yeah. The 18, yep. the 18 plans. Or council, eighteen council. Okay, yeah. now here's the thing, though. I just googled, you know, Hmong last names, Hmong surnames. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, if I Google your name, and in doing research prior to this, okay, you you Google Shunu her, and then the first autocorrect suggestion or the first autofill suggestion is meme. Oh gosh. Seriously. Oh, Seriously. That, I'm never going to live that down. I'm never going to live that <laughs> which is, down. Which is what you tweeted, like, I don't know, two years ago or something like that, or yeah. whatever it was, like, it, a year later, and it's still here. It's so funny because, like, at least once a year, that tweet will just take off. Like, I will get notifications for a week that people are liking it, retweeting it. Um, it it's, it's crazy. And it was funny because when I first tweeted that, it, it took off and it was getting retweeted a lot and shared and, and liked. Um, and then it kind of died down after like a week. And then Chad Ochocinco retweeted it. And that's when it just, it blew up and it became a meme. And So it yeah. was, if you spot this guy, call police. U.S. Marshals are looking for him and he may have been in Hampton Roads. Now, here's the thing. I, the original tweet is not the picture that usually gets associated with no, it. And no. I, that's, that's the part that gets changed most often, right? Yeah. Is yeah. The, so, is the picture. So, yeah. So the original tweet was, was that, and then it had a link to our web story. And then it was the guy's right. like crazy mugshot. Oh, super and tattooed. Then, it's like yeah. every SoundCloud rapper combined into one. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so that was the original tweet. Right. And then, um, yeah. And then somewhere along the line, like someone, photoshopped another picture over it and so it was funny because like 
um, there's like random people that I went to like middle school with who will like message me on Facebook and be like, Hey, you're a meme. <laughs> it's, it's so funny. Now if somebody, and I will include a screenshot of this uh, for yeah. DB and ATV and YouTube. So if you're listening to this, then go find the video of this, or I'll probably just link that original tweet or whatever yeah. uh, in the show notes for the podcast, because it's, that's, that's the last thing that I expected to find when <laughs> Googling you to find like, okay, let me, let's see where he worked first and let's do this. Yeah, I will, yeah. I will admit I was nervous. I was genuinely nervous clicking on Chanu her meme. Cause I had yeah. no idea what was going to come up. No clue. Yeah, That, yeah, it's, you know, at, at first I was like, I think that was really like the first tweet I had that like really like blew up. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I blame Chad Ochocinco because it, it died <laughs> down and he retweeted it and it just blew up. The uh, one I saw was from Dana White. The the oh yeah yeah he he retweeted it too. Yes yeah yeah a couple a couple like famous people retweeted it and it really just took off from there. And so every once in a while, like you know, it'll get revived and people will find it. So. I'll have to Photoshop my picture in there, and then and then maybe <laughs> maybe that'll go viral and maybe people will find the podcast. Why not? We'll throw it out there. It. You and I have connected uh, via DM in the last few weeks over your going to some vegan restaurants in Atlanta. Yeah. Now, are are you vegan? Are you do you do you try to like okay meatless Mondays or this or that? No, so I'm not vegan, but um, one of my very good friends and mentor, um, shout out Joy Limnakran. She's um an anchor at Court TV. She just moved to Atlanta, and uh, she's vegan. And so when she moved here, we uh we're gonna go catch up and have have dinner together and so um uh, she's vegan and so she found a restaurant and we went i'm not like i'm not like uh oh vegan food is nasty or anything like that but um uh yeah i was cool with it and so we went and uh yeah i had a good time um you know i i'm not i i don't have any dietary restrictions or anything like that i just try to be a little cautious about what i eat so mama k vegan in atlanta that's where you i think you went yeah yeah uh-huh yeah yeah, it was it was good. It was good. It was a, a Malaysian uh, vegan restaurant, um, and I've been to Slutty Vegan in Atlanta, and it was like it, that. It feels like eating like it, it doesn't feel like eating if, vegan food. Whatever. If you walk food, into a good place like that that serves quote vegan junk food, if yeah. you didn't know it was vegan, yeah, then you you would not be able to tell the difference. That's oh no, that's not how at far all. it's come. If if this was yeah. uh, two thousand five or ten, you, you're not getting that. Maybe yeah. one or two places here and there who have found, you know, the secret, but by and large, you're not getting that. Yeah. Yeah. That's what my friend was telling me. She was saying that, you know, her being vegan in 2021 is so easy because even if she's on the road, she was like, basically any chain or grocery store or yep. anywhere you stop will have some sort of vegan option. And so, um, and it's yeah, interesting no. because you know, it, you go to the South, you say vegan, it, it's like, it's a foreign language. You know, I know you're in a major yeah. city in Atlanta, so it's a little bit easier because you've got, yeah. you know, so it's a melting pot, if you will. But, yeah. uh, oh, it's it's so much easier now just in general. But like when I, I've been vegan since 2017, my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer and we we decided, okay, we, we need to change something. We need to try to control yeah. something in this life that feels out of control. Right. And- we felt blessed because we're in Los Angeles. It's so much easier right, to, right. To, to, to get things. If you're in Wyoming or Montana, 
good luck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I think my, my friend was saying that, you know, a lot of, I th- we may not realize it, but like a lot of, especially the processed meats that we eat, like a lot of it isn't even fully meat. So, right. you know, you can really easily uh, like mimic that, you know, in a vegan fashion. I mean, if you want a full bone steak, that's going to be hard to mimic, but you know, just like the sausages and, and the hot dogs and things like that. Can yeah. Really I, I draw the line at like tofu steaks. Let's, let's not get carried away. The tofu <laughs> yeah, steaks. Right. I understand that that's a portobello mushroom. I get it. It doesn't taste anything <laughs> like the steak that I used no, to enjoy. Not at Just all. stop it. Did, did you feel any sort of health benefits after you switched over? I lost meat? 20 pounds in three weeks. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, just that's, that's how I start telling people like if it, because we stopped with the junk food, we stopped with the processed stuff, a lot of the processed stuff. Now here's the thing with, with going vegan you can still go heavy on the processed because right. like you said, if it's, if it's mimicking meat, it's likely going through some sort of or heavy right. processing, but, uh, Oh yeah. More energy. I, I, I was down under 200 pounds for the first time in, in several years, you know, dad bod yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, 20 pounds in the first three weeks and then anxiety and stress helped me with the other 20 pounds after yeah. <laughs> after that. <laughs> After that, but, uh, and, and, and now if, you know, we're recording this on, on what Thursday, May 13th, this is going to get posted soon. So, uh, I'm okay. on a, I'm on a raw vegan diet just for this week, maybe next yeah. week. Cause I want to reset. I want to reset. Yeah, yeah. I was still going too heavy on the process stuff. I just felt heavy. I just felt yeah. eh, just kind of drained. So anytime you can change your diet, whether it's vegan or something else, but Anytime you can change your diet for a week or 14 days, you're going to feel a difference. You're, you're totally yeah. going to feel a difference. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, last, last March when really everything, when the world shut down, I was so scared. I was like, Oh man, like, I don't want to be, cause I can't go to the gym. I can't do anything. Yeah. I don't want to put on a bunch of weight sitting in the house and working from home. And so I was like, just like your, your thought process. I was like, the, 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 the one thing I can really control right now, is my diet. So I need to like do something different. And, um, you know, I'm not vegan. But ramen and oatmeal, time, baby. Ramen and oatmeal. Let's go back to basics. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I, I I was like, oh man, like what, what do I do? Okay. So I thought I could still go and walk outside. I can go walk in the belt line and get my exercise in that way. But then I switched to a pretty strict keto diet for about three and a half months. And within the first within the first month I dropped quite a bit of weight yeah like just between exercising and changing my diet it was was crazy Shanu thank you for this I appreciate it like I said my first repeat customer on the podcast uh I I could not have picked a better guest to have come back for their uh, their second time thank you Shanu I appreciate it I appreciate it. it thank you you can watch this episode on YouTube and DB&A TV. Follow the Aaron Bender podcast on your favorite platforms and link to it at AaronBender.com. That's also where you can find all my social media. If you have guest ideas or comments, email me, AaronBenderMedia at gmail.com. Be well, and thanks for listening.